This is, it's on, I'm on. Got power, we're good. Can you hear me? Is it working yet? There it is. They want me to raise my voice a little bit. They were ready for me before I was ready for me. This is pretty awesome. Would you guys grab a seat? We're gonna, going to listen to the word of the Lord this morning. Go to the Bible and, and hear what God has to say for us today. So, hi, I'm Jamie. What, what happened? Did this section leave now? Where did they go? <laughs> now you guys are over here. You're confusing me this morning. Oh, man, it is, where are we at, three weeks, four weeks into the semester, and we're feeling it, I think. Janice is over there. Yeah, but it's just Janice. It's Janice. Not for long, all right. So three, four weeks into the semester now, and we're feeling it. I think the town has kind of got that, yeah, there's that real sense of excitement to start with, and everything's like, whoa, and then it just kind of like, whoa, the reality of schoolwork and all the stuff going on has hit us. Um, so I just want to pray real quick that, that God would... Uh, kind of eliminate the distractions in our hearts and minds this morning so that we can hear from him. Shall we, can we do that together? Okay, so Jesus, thank you for being present with us this morning. Um, and I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit now would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would open the ears of our hearts to receive and hear what you have for us this morning. God, may we be encouraged by your word. May we not and be, maybe be challenged but not brought to a place of um, of shame, Lord, because you free us from shame, and you free us from guilt, and you set us to walk in your ways. God, may we walk in those ways when we leave this church this morning. So Jesus, uh, we offer you ourselves, and we ask that you would just kind of mess with our hearts a little bit, mess with our perspective of the world, mess with our perspective on the church, mess with our perspective on our lives, and help us to see a new hope, a new way, a new, a new way of living, God, that invites us to walk in the fullness of what you've created us to be the fullness of human uh, dignity, the fullness of the human heart. And God, may we walk and bring your kingdom. In your name, amen. Amen. Oh, I spilled my tea this morning. So we've been working on a sermon series called Wrecked, uh, Wrecked for Anything Less. And you know, as I've mentioned before, some people have had a hard time with this sermon series. And I, we came down to this, they've had a hard time with the title of the sermon series, just because it sounds like, you know, you wreck your car, that's a bad thing. When somebody comes in and wrecks your life, that's a bad thing. So we've been talking about how God can come in and wreck us, but in a really good way, right? He can wreck us and so that we're like spoiled in a way for anything that's ordinary. We're, we're spoiled for anything that's pedestrian. I don't know why we use that word pedestrian to describe things other than walking across the street. But you know what? You know what I see? Are you following what I'm saying? Okay, you guys are really, really quiet today. Super duper quiet today. When? Now. All right. <laughs> Do you hear that? It's changing right now. So if you haven't been around with us before, so like this is a dialogue, okay? <laughs> I, I am hoping that you will say yes and amen or I agree. If you disagree, write it down and come talk to me after the fact. That's really great. But it is distracting when you disagree with me publicly. So let's, uh, you know, and, and I want you to laugh. I want you to have a good time, okay? Because laughter actually, I think, is the highest form of communication, which is why I'm starting the sermon with what I have here. So this has been a really hard series to, to preach. It's been a, because of the title. And I was like wrestling with today's title, which we're going to be talking kind of about work in our place in the world. And I was like, okay, what are we going to title this thing? A wrecked life or wrecked work or, you know, just like, and then last week we were talking about being freedom and like wrecked in prison or a wrecked church. Or we're going to talk about our sexuality eventually, wrecked sexuality. It just all sounds bad. But I realized that it's not as bad as it could be because there are some really bad sermon series ideas out there. And I have three of them for you this morning. This has nothing to do with my sermon. It's just three really bad sermon series ideas. So you know that I'm pretty good at this. Okay. So let's show you our three really bad sermon series ideas. First one is this. It's going to come up any second now. There it is. 100 Ways to Die, Exploring the Most Gory Deaths in the Bible. See, now, how many of you are glad I didn't do that one? King Ehud in the book of Judges, one of my absolute favorites. If you're in middle school, you might just want to spend the rest of the service reading that one and figuring out what God's saying there. Uh, the next one is this. Let's see. The Original Hipster, The Study of John the Baptist. That one actually might be a good idea. You know, we could do that. We could wear the hats and stuff. I love hipsters. Um, and then the last one is this one. This is, my church is cooler than yours. You're like, you're all processing this right now. You're like, 
what would he even talk about with this? I don't know. So these are not what we're talking about. You guys with me now? Are you awake? Yeah. I even told Anna, I, I might be skipping these, but you guys were so like, I don't know. And so there they are, three really bad sermon series ideas. So we're going to stick with wrecked today. And we're going to ask that God wrecks our lives, but in a good way. And we're going to start with the book of Acts chapter 6, if you want to open there. Um, this would be great. If you've got a blue Bible, I have no clue what the page number is. I forgot to look today. Most of you can't read it anyway because it's so small. Um, so you can open up your phones as long as you promise not to look at the Seahawks score. Do I have an amen, a promise from anybody not going to look at the Seahawks score? You're all DVRing or TiVoing or whatever it is, pirating, <laughs> stealing it to watch it later. All right. So not, not checking scores. You can check afterward and then cheer. Right, Jamie Haas? That's my man. All right. Acts chapter 6. So this story is crazy. I don't understand. Okay, I do understand now, but I didn't. As I was reading the the book of Acts, I got to the story and I thought, why in the world is this story here? It is boring. It is not exciting. It is just like full of, it's kind of like the book of Deuteronomy. It's got a bunch of names in it. It's got like, like, who are these people? What difference does it make that it's here at all? Um, It's it's just kind of like stuck. It's like we got these people coming out of prison. They've been escaped prison. We have a prison escape. And then after that, we have this story of a man being martyred, but in the middle is this story that's like about administration and about how the church is actually working, and it's so dull, and like, what, why is it here? And I felt like God kept setting it before me, and like, you got to preach this thing. And I'm like, why? Why do I have to preach this one? Because it seems so dull. And God's like, no, this is a really important text. In fact, Luke, the guy that I inspired to write this 2,000 years ago, put it here for a reason. Like, think about all the stories of the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. He wrote both of those books, and everything he put in there, he did it with intention. And this is here for a reason, and it is for us today to hear from God what he wants to say to us. And I think, actually, as I, as I looked at it, I realized, wow, he really was intentional, that this story actually gets to the very core of what it is to be a part of the kingdom of God. It sets a tone for every believer in every generation and every time. It points back to the teachings of Jesus, and it points us further into the story of God as a people. It's an important event, too, because really it represents a huge attack on the church. So last week we talked about uh, Paul and John being thrown in prison for preaching the gospel in the streets. You know, right? Thousands of people are coming to faith. The religious leaders take them, and they throw them into prison. Their whole goal was to stop the message of Jesus from being spread. And so if you're going to stop the message, you just kill the messengers. That's all you got to do. It's not like a text message that goes out. If you've got specific people that are carrying this, you put them in prison, maybe you shut this thing down. But the power of the Holy Spirit, the doors come open and they walk out, right? The angel comes and sets them free and they walk in that freedom and now they're able to be preachers of the gospel to the world around them. So we've got to stop this somehow. So if we can't stop the messengers, we can't kill the message, we can't kill Jesus because Jesus was killed and then he rose from the dead. If we can't do that, then what we got to do is we got to divide the people who carry the message. We got to divide the church. We have to break the church apart. If Satan can't imprison it, can't silence it, it's got to start messing with the family, right? You guys have seen that like in the, in the movies and the TV shows or whatever, the mob's like, threatening somebody. He's like, you can't threaten me. He's like, no, but I know where your daughter goes to school. He's like, oh. That's what's going on here. Satan's like, okay, I can't mess with you, but I can mess with your family. And he's going to come in and try to mess with the family, start poking holes in it. So that's where we're at. We're going to read this passage. We're just going to read uh, seven verses, seven, seven sections, seven sentences or so. So it's very short. You ready? Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Boring. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve at tables. That was kind of snotty. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole congregation. Strange. And then they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon. I think that's not Timon of Timon and Pumbaa, probably a different person. 
Um, and three of you got that, right? When he's just a young warthog? Okay. Sorry, I'm just goofy. And Parmenaeus and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Doesn't that just feel like Old Testament, really boring stuff? Who cares about these people? We never hear about them again. Uh, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Okay. See what I was saying? It's like, why is this here? It's just so detail-oriented. It's, so, it's not an exciting story, but it actually is. It really is. So this attack that's coming in here is first and foremost, divide and conquer. So you have two groups of people. It says, now in the days, in these days, there were disi- the disciples were increasing in number. So they're growing so fast that they can't keep up with themselves. It's hard if you come to church on a Sunday and there are 10 people that you've never met before and you want to try to remember their names and build a relationship with them. Now, in these days, we're talking about thousands of people coming together. And there's whole people groups that are getting saved because in these days, it worked as a family. If one person of the family came to faith, everybody changed their religion and they turned to Jesus and they started following Jesus and started learning and growing. And so it was just growing by leaps and bounds, but it also made space for division because there was different people groups. Different races, different nationalities, different cultural perspectives. And that's what we have here. Two races, not two races, one race of people, two cultures. The Hellenists and the Hebrews. You guys want to say that just because it's fun? Say Hellenists and the Hebrews. Yeah, so now you guys can say that. That's really good. So what are they? So the Hebrews were the Jews, right? They're from, from, from all the way back in Genesis, when God created a people, he created the Hebrews. They were the Israelites. They were a holy nation. They were a race of people. They were God's chosen people. But we come all the way to the end, toward the end of the New Old Testament, and God leaves the temple where they, where they were worshiping him because they had turned away from God. And then all the peoples, the nations of the earth came in, and they sacked the city, and they carried them off as slaves into other parts of the world. Many of those people landed in the Greek world. They landed in the cities and, uh, along the Roman Empire, at the edges of, of the Mediterranean Sea, and even in Greece itself. And Greek, for a long time, was the dominant culture. Greece was, we, we worshiped the Greek gods, we learned from the Greek thought, philosophy, and way of thinking, and we spoke Greek. It was the language of the world until the Romans took over. So there was a lot of people that were ethnically Jewish who were culturally Greek. Now, you guys seen Big Fat Greek Wedding, right? You've seen Big Fat Greek Wedding? A culturally, Jew, or culturally Greek is what that means. They're not just like in the food, but they spoke Greek, they acted Greek, they were the neck and not the head, and all these things that are in that movie. There's all this kind of stuff going on, and they were playful and odd and different, and they still worshiped God. They still loved Yahweh. They still worshiped at the temple, but they didn't look like the Jews. Now, the Jews, on the other hand, they said culturally were Jewish, not just racially, but culturally were Jewish. So they wore Jewish dress, thought in Jewish ways, walked in the temple in certain ways, and did certain things. So you had these two people that were both the same race, that looked very different, acted very different. The, the Hellenists, the Greek people, they thought of the Jews as really uppity, just holier than thou. They thought of them as elitists because they would act as though they were better than everybody else because they were culturally pure. And then the Jewish, the Jews, the Hebrews, they thought of everybody who adopted a different culture as bumpkins. Okay, they were just rednecks. They were, they were you know, not educated. They weren't smart. They weren't Jewish enough. And so they got these two people into the same church, looking across the aisles at each other and judging one another. No, they were judging one another. They saw that they, 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 they lived life together. They worshiped the same God, but they saw their differences. And then what would happen is that both groups had widows. And in those days, being a widow was about the worst thing that could happen to you because your, your man had to provide for you. Women weren't allowed to work in a lot of cases. They didn't have education. They didn't have the skills. They just managed the home in those days. And so if you became a widow, you had no way to provide for yourself unless your sons could provide for you. And in many cases, because of war and famine and things like that, widows were left to themselves. Um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is an excellent case. She had an older husband who died at some point in history, and Jesus and Jesus' brother James were her providers. When Jesus died on the cross, he says to John, the disciple, John, take care of mom. John is now responsible to take care of Mary, the widow, to make sure that she eats. And John is this disciple. And actually what happens is in this story, he becomes the disciple that's taking care of all the widows. 
Now, thousands of people have come to faith, so you can imagine that there's hundreds of widows. And John is doing his very best to take care of them, but he's also been in and out of prison. He's also been persecuted over and over again, and he's, walking, he's doing different things. And he's not probably a very good administrator. I can relate to that. I'm not a very good administrator. And so he drops the ball. Somewhere along the line, he drops the ball, and the Hellenists start looking and going, hey, my, my grandmother over here, on second cousin twice removed, who's a widow, isn't getting fed. She isn't getting her daily allotment of food. People were taking their houses, and they were selling them, taking the money to the church. Here's the money, and the church was dividing them, and John was responsible to feed the widows. And some people weren't getting fed, and it was very important because they were going to starve. We also know that it was important to the church that the widows got fed because we find later in the Bible, and all the way to 1 Timothy 5, that the widows were actually expected by the church to take all of their time and energy and to pour it back into the church. They weren't just people that need, were needy, but these were ministers within the church. These were people that were being released to, to minister because they didn't have any responsibility. So we'll feed you, and you serve in the church. You, you teach Sunday school. You be an usher. You be a greeter. You, you visit the sick in the hospital. You, you serve the poor. You do all these things, and it was really important to them. And so part of the church wasn't being served. The church was being divided. Now, you could look at the text, and some scholars think that this was intentional, that the Hellenists, the, the Hebrews thought that the Hellenists were so, such bumpkins, they were like, I'm not feeding them. Some people think that it was unintentional, just an oversight. There was just too much, too many people to handle. But bottom line is, when we look at this, what we see is that the broken world outside the church is already invaded within the church. The divisions, the, the brokenness of the world, the way we see one another is within the church. It's there, and Satan is using this as an opportunity, an unintended slight to turn it into something so big that it divides the church. It's a good thing that that doesn't ever happen today in the church, right? Come on, let's be honest. This tactic has worked really well over the years. We've been divided over race big time. We've been divided, divided over theology. We've been divided over worship style, over how long the sermon is, or how short the sermon is, or whether I'm preaching the sermon or not. Whether, whether we use wine in communion or we use juice, we've been divided over written prayers versus spontaneous prayers. We've been divided over what kind of clothes we wear and what kind of clothes that, well, just, just it, I was, what kind of clothes we wear. You saw where I was going, and I was like, stop myself. What kind of clothes we don't wear. I don't know what that even means. We've been divided over all of these things, right? We all have opinions, and we let those opinions divide us, whether we're Democrat or we're Republican, whether we're, we, we think that LGBTQ people are okay with God or whether we don't. I mean, all of these issues that the world is out there debating that comes into the church, and we get divided. Now, your experience of being divided from somebody else over politics that is perfectly normal and fine at the Democratic National Debate or the Republican National Committee or in a debate setting outside the church. But in the kingdom of God, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, Republican nor Democrat. We are one in Jesus. So it should not be your experience in church. And yet the enemy sneaks it in. He sneaks it in because he knows that just like a chocolate bar, when you break it in half, it's much easier to eat if two people have it, Right? Break it in half, break it in quarters, divide it up, and we can, we can share it around. Now, I don't like to break up chocolate bars and share them very much, but Satan seems to. He likes to break up the church and divide it. Now, I want you to know there's going to be some hope coming, but before I go into that hope, I want to show you the second attack that comes in this passage. The second attack is this. So the, the two people groups are divided against one another, and they're pointing fingers. The second group, Hellenists, they come to the apostles and they come and they say, hey, nobody's feeding our widows. What are you going to do about it? They come with this expectation that the apostles should fix this. It's your job. You're our leaders. You're our ministers. Make it right. The first attack gets us to sit on opposite sides of the church and point fingers. The second attack gets us to sit back and not do anything about it and expect leaders and ministers to do the work of the church for us to make us dependent on professional leaders in the ministry. I call this the cruise ship mentality. The cruise ship mentality. You guys know cruise ships? They're beautiful. 
They're wonderful, except for the part where they go on the ocean. I'm not real keen on that. If they had cruise ships that went on land, I'd probably be all for that. But cruise ships on the ocean, not so sure. But so there's these massive ships, and they are full of people that are there to serve your every need. Okay, there's nothing wrong with this. We pay good money to go and do this to relax, but you go on the boat, they feed you every meal, the meals are fancy, they're great, you go to whatever entertainment you want to do, they take your bags to your room, they do all the stuff for you, and you just sit back and you receive. It's a cruise ship mentality, taking on a cruise, but cruises aren't normal life, right? Cruises are something we go off to and we enjoy it for a few days or a few weeks and then we come home and go back to normal life. So these, these folks had this cruise ship mentality that I'm up on this ship and those people over there that are the servants, that are the ministers, that are leaders, that are the captains, these are the guys that are supposed to take care of these problems for me. It's kind of like the movie WALL-E. You guys ever watched that movie? My parents absolutely hated that movie. I think they said because the first half, there's no talking. It's just robots. But I loved that movie, and I especially loved it when they go onto the space cruise ship and everybody is just gigantic blob human beings laying on space couches that float around and they get drinks and the robots take care of every need and they just get, they get fat and they can't do anything for themselves. That is the mentality that is starting to creep into the church. That is an extreme view of it, but it is the beginning. It's trying to come in and to break the church, not just in half, but to get the church to get lazy and to not do anything for itself. In a way, it's like introducing a new class system to the church, that there are the ministers and then there are the consumers of ministry. It's not just race that is dividing or just culture that is dividing us, but it is our role within that body, whether I do things or I don't do things, whether I just come and listen or I come and I give. Ministry, in this context, they're thinking ministry is something for ministers to do. It's a good thing that that mentality ended in the first century. Right, exactly. Unfortunately, it hasn't. But like I said, there is good news. And I think that that's why this story is actually here, that there is good news, that these two attacks that are still taking place, dividing us over our opinions, our thoughts, our race, our culture, our politics, and then the second one where we're dividing even further with ministers and and those being ministered to, pastors and everybody else, that there is hope. And I think where that hope comes from is they, they begin to talk about the church not from the perspective of a cruise ship, but instead from the perspective of an aircraft carrier. Now, I'm going to use this analogy of an aircraft carrier because my dad built aircraft carriers when I was a little kid. He worked on the, the USS Nimitz, which I, that's actually the Nimitz. Um, massive ship. Now, I'm using it because I like this stuff, but not, not because I think that the church should be an aircraft carrier. doesn't mean we have to be massive. This could be easily be a fishing boat, right, with like six people on board catching fish. This could easily be um, a small uh, rescue, lighthouse rescue station with like eight or nine people that are working the rescue station, and three or four people go out on the boat. But I like aircraft carriers because they're big and powerful, and my dad built them. He was a nuclear machinist on them. The thing about aircraft carriers is this. There are over 4,500 people on one of these suckers, and they're working for one goal, one mission. Whatever their commander tells them to do, they obey, they work together. There is nobody on that boat that does not have a job, a purpose for being there, and who has been trained. They have been released into their role, and everyone is, there's no extra personnel. Everybody is pitching in to make that boat sail out into the world and project its power into the world, even all the way down to the Navy pilot. I wanted to be a Navy pilot when I was a kid. This is like, was, I wanted to, first I wanted to be a Navy pilot and then an astronaut. That was, my, that was the trajectory of my life. That's where I was going until I discovered that I have terrible eye-hand coordination, that I also get seasick really bad, and that anytime airplanes get bouncy, I want to, you know, motion sickness. So all of a sudden that was out the window. Space Force. I'm going to get sick in the space too. It's just not going to work. So I thought these were so cool. I wanted to be a part of this great mission. I wanted to be a part of what, what this aircraft carrier was doing in the world. And I think I really wanted to be Tom Cruise and Top Gun because that's just awesome, right? And, and that's what I wanted. But then I find that like in life, it's not, it doesn't always work that way. It's not always a team. We're not always going in the same place and doing the same things. We're not, we're not all following the same God. We get mixed up and it divides us and pulls us apart. And so we get this image that the, the, the disciples are starting to think about what, what did Jesus teach us in the New Testament that applies to this circumstance? 
And their mentality switches from the cruise ship mentality, where the, the leaders take care of everything, and we sit and we, we receive, to, wow, everybody actually has a role. Everybody has a place and a purpose. God flips the church in this moment, and he takes the, the whole nature of the church is challenged. And it's, it's not just its nature, but it's its character, it's its purpose. And that's where we see here in verse 2, the 12 to summon the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and who we will appoint to do this, this duty. They start by bringing everybody together, not just the Hebrews, not just the Hellenists. They bring the whole church together. And I can't imagine what a gathering like that looked like in early Jerusalem. Thousands of people somehow coming together. And they put to them, they say this, look, it's not our job to wait tables. And that sounds really snotty, doesn't it? It makes it sound like, oh, waiters and waitresses are just such second-class citizens. They just bring the food. But it's not. Actually, the word used here in the Greek, he's talking about people who were money changers in the temple who, who made it possible. Not even the, we're not talking about the bad ones that Jesus was flipping their table. We're talking about the people that made it possible for you to worship by giving, by changing your money, or by purchasing animals. They made it possible for you to encounter God by changing money over. People who had skills. It's also used for tax collectors, people who would count money and be able to handle money and have, have a good reputation. That's what we're talking about. It's like, it's not right for us to handle this money. That's what they're saying. It's not right for us to figure out what to do with this. We've been called to preach the gospel, to teach the word, and to pray. This is what we're called to do. This is our role. So there's got to be somebody on this ship who can take this role and run with it. This is their duty. This is their place. This is what, they, what they're called to do. The disciples challenged the concept that ministry is something for professional people to do. That ministry is for the pastors. That ministry is for the, la- for the, for the high leaders. Ministry is for the Sunday school teachers. In biblical terms, ministry is a willingness to respond to the spiritual need that God puts in your path anytime, anyplace. And what the disciples are saying here is, look, somebody else, this, God is putting this in their path. This is a job for somebody else. We live in a broken world, don't we? We've already illustrated that by having this division coming into the church. If we look around, if we go to our workplaces, we see the brokenness of our world. We see the brokenness of our families. We see brokenness kind of trying to creep its way into our marriages and we fight against it. We see brokenness trying to come in and divide our friendships. We see brokenness coming into our workplaces, into our coffee shops. Everywhere you pick up the newspaper, you see brokenness. Because we live in a broken world, because we are sinners among sinners. That means that every situation that we find ourselves in, every location that you happen to be standing, every relationship that you have, that you encounter in life, it requires ministry. Ministry doesn't just happen at church. Ministry isn't just for those who are trained and, and appointed. It's for all of us. Marriage is ministry. Parenting is ministry. Friendship is ministry. School is ministry. Living with your neighbors is ministry. Work is ministry. Life is ministry. And ministry is life. It's for all of us. There is nobody on the ship that has not been qualified, chosen, set apart for some role in the kingdom of God. So they pull all of the people together and they say, look, we got this. We need seven people. Why seven? You know, some people look at that and go, oh, it's numbers in the Bible. Not in this case. Seven, because there's seven days of the week. We've got to cover every day of the week. We've got to make sure this is done. It's very practical. We're going to pull seven people out of all of us to take this one role. And they appoint them. They set them apart. The apostles' plan was motivated by the teachings of Jesus. It, it wasn't just off the cuff. They thought back. They thought back to the parable of the vineyard in Matthew 20, where workers are waiting to be hired for a job. Some of them work all day. Some of them work an hour. And at the end of the day, everyone is paid the same. But the big thing that we often miss in that parable is that every single one of those people was a worker. Every single one of those people that entered the kingdom of God, who was going to receive a reward at the end, was a worker in the kingdom of God. We are called and chosen in every situation we are. That's why they bring the whole church together. And that's why we speak this message to the whole church. You are valuable. You are important. You are not second class. You are not set aside and disregarded. You have a role, a place, a calling within the kingdom of God to serve as people. And it's not just at church. It's in your family. 
It's in your neighborhood. It's in your workplace. You are a minister. You know what happens if we stop thinking about ourselves this way? It's not just the cruise ship mentality. What happens is, is if we start thinking about, okay, I live regular life and then I go and minister at church, what happens is, is that ministry winds up getting the leftovers. That ministering to our neighbors winds up getting the leftover that we have because life gets everything that we've got. My work gets everything I got. My, my family gets everything I got. And when I minister, then I'm ministering out of whatever is left. I love leftovers. In lunchtime, leftovers are awesome. They really are. But when you have leftovers day after day after day, and it's all you're eating, you're eating somebody else's leftovers for every meal, it can get a little old. And sometimes you get a weird mix of foods. I've eaten lunch where I had sausage, rice, roasted vegetables, and guacamole. Heidi sometimes eats a sweet potato and guacamole and like salad, and it's like, I don't even know what's going on there. This sounds terrible to me. She's like, it's pretty good. All it's missing is these eight things. Like, it's not even a full lunch. Sometimes if you're eating leftovers, the food's gone bad, right? You ever had that? You're like, oh, I think the sausage is off. Smell it. And she's like, ah, I think it's okay. You get about halfway through. You're like, no, this is definitely off. This is, it's, it's gone. It's done. When we divide our lives into sacred and secular, secular life, the things that we do every day, that gets our best. It gets our, our, our first parts, our, our, our first attention, our first energy. Life gets the bulk of our work and ministry and worship, and Jesus gets the leftovers. Leftover energy, leftover finances, leftover passion. And this church here is flipping it upside down and saying, no, the whole church together is called. We're going to deal with this together. We are all called. We are all chosen. There are no little people. There are no small lives. We all have a role to play. Let's find some people to take this role and set them free to do it. Now, the apostles say it's not right for us to wait on tables. And the thing I wanted to point out about this is actually these guys were really clear on what their job is. They're really clear that there is a nature to their calling and to their work. Their own calling as disciples, and their work was already big. They were preaching and teaching all the time. I have been preaching for like six, seven weeks back to back, and I'm tired. I need a break. And I'm not saying that to me, oh, Jamie's so awful. You know, it's so hard. But you run out of things to say after a while. It just kind of happens, and you need some time to fill back up. And these guys were doing it day after day after day after day, and they're spending the rest of their time just praying. And that's why we see all these miracles happening. It was a full-time job, and now they got somebody else saying, hey, you need to do something else. So they got clear. They said, no, that's not our role. There are other people to do this job. And that's to say that not every ministry that is out there is suited for everybody here. There are some people that are suited to do this ministry in feeding the widows. There are some people that are suited to teach Sunday school. There are some people that are suited and called and gifted to preach and teach and to pray. We all have different gifts. We all have a different heart, but we're all part of the same family. And we've been placed in a unique time and place. We've been placed in unique families and locations. And there are things that only you can do in this world. There are things that only you can do in this church. We don't need a bunch of first century Christians running around doing first century Christian things. You know, that's often when people preach the book of Acts, like, we're going to be a first century church. We're going to go back to the early church. You know, we don't need that. What the world needs is 21st century Christians doing 21st century things, living into their calling, doing the things that God has set before them as a team, as all of us together sharing what we have been given with the world. 21st century Christians preaching the gospel in 21st century ways to 21st century people. Our day, our way. That's what this world needs. And so we got to get clear on what it is that we are called to do, each one of us, to listen to the Holy Spirit and say, what is it that I'm here to do? The apostles knew their calling. We are called, we are chosen to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, to the teaching and preaching of the good news. They knew what their calling was and they devoted themselves fully. Do you know what you're called to? Do you know what you were made for? Do you know what you were chosen for? And I know right now where some of us are thinking, again, back to that confusion of like in the church and out of the church. Everything that you do can be a ministry. You can be a student and you could be bringing peace and gentleness and goodness and self-control. 
You can be grace and mercy and love in the context of your classroom. You can be an office manager, and you can bring peace and goodness and gentleness and self-control and mercy and grace and kindness to your office context. You are bringing God wherever you go. And we often miss it. We don't see how I was a peacemaker or how, how I brought a ministry to my marriage by just loving my wife well. We miss how we can be a minister to our children by giving them grace or helping them connect to God or helping them connect to a church. We miss how we can be a minister of the gospel to our neighbor by coming over with my chainsaw and cutting down his tree. These are all things that bring the God's kingdom to people. And we need to know what it is we're called to do. So how do you know? How do you know what it is? There's so many things you can do, isn't there? So many things, so many available opportunities for you. It's a little bit like trying keys in a lock with a set of unfamiliar keys. When I was in uh, high school, I worked in Wendy's, and we had this guy that worked there. I don't even remember his name, but what I remember is his keys. The guy lived in his car, and he had a ball of keys like this that he wore around all the time. You could hear him coming a mile away, jingle, 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 and you just looked at him. He's like, you live in a car. What are all those keys for? You know, there's, there's a thousand keys on there. That, what do these even do? Like, and he didn't know either. He just wore, liked to wear, I don't know, maybe it balanced him or something. Finding what we're called to do can be a little bit like having a great big ball of unfamiliar keys. You know, you hand you the keys and you're like, I want you to go unlock the door. Okay, so you take the keys and you go and what do you do? You have to start with just like try one key at a time, right? You just try one key at a time, seeing which one fits until you unlock that door. Now, if you're really smart about this, you can eliminate some of the keys. You're like, oh, like, he's got like 18 toilet paper roll keys on here. We, can, we don't need those. That's not going to unlock a door. Oh, look, here's a Subaru key, and here's a Toyota key, and here's a Chrysler key. And man, he's like, he's driving a Mitsubishi, and it doesn't even have that key. So what are these even for? So you limit, and you come down to like six door keys, right? You got six door keys. So now you've got a place to start. That's what finding our ministry in life is about. We, we eliminate the things that aren't our passion, eliminate the things we know we're not called to, eliminate the things that we are not suited for, and then we just start trying to fill the things that we are called to. Now, you've got to love the job description that's in this passage. It says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. It's very, very practical, very simple. They have to be full of wisdom, full of the Spirit, and of good repute. That is their job description. And you're like, first of all, I've got all the keys, and I've got to narrow it down, but am I even qualified to represent God in His mission in the world? Am I, am I even qualified to feed a widow and to represent Jesus as I feed her? This job description makes it so that all of us could do this full of the Spirit. The early disciples believed that anybody who accepted Jesus into their life were filled with the Spirit. It happens in Acts over and over again. These Gentiles start believing, and they're speaking in tongues. Clearly, God is in them. God gives us the resources to do everything He calls us to do. We are filled with the Spirit if we are following Jesus. It may not feel like it. It may not look like it, but the Spirit is alive and active in you. And If you're bringing peace, hope, love, joy, gentleness, self-control to bear in the world, you've been filled with the Spirit. You are qualified. Wisdom, that's something that we grow in. And wisdom for them was to know who to give money to and when. But it's a simple, simple, simple job description. And integrity. Being who you are on the inside as well as on the outside. We can all move toward wisdom and integrity. So we can all be qualified to minister in his kingdom. It's really interesting to note that the names that are listed here, they're all Greek names. The people that were being slighted, the people that were being left aside, the people that were on the margin were the people that were chosen and brought into the center. The people that were chosen to build God's kingdom in this context and in this story. And I know that many of us have chosen to place ourselves on the outside. We stay on the outside of worship. We kind of, I'm just watching. We stay on the outside of relationships in church. We stay on the outside of, of, of work or all sorts of things. My calling is to be a scientist. My calling is to be a forester. My calling is to be this. But you are being invited to see those things as essential to the kingdom of God and being brought from the outside in. There is no small people. 
There is nobody who is being left aside. You have all been called and chosen. So the question becomes, what will you do with the treasure of your life? Another story that came to mind is that, what are these guys even thinking about? Jesus has a, has a, has a parable where he gives money. This manager, his owner, gives money to three guys and says, take this money and manage it. Different amounts to each person. Two of them go out and they invest it and they double and triple the return. One guy buries it. And the guy that buries it and saves it, he's just there. I'm just protecting this for you. The manager looks at him. The owner says, get away from me. Just give me that money and give it to somebody else. What, what are you, you could have at least invested a little bit of it. And the whole parable is about our lives. We've been given a gift. We've been given gifts and skills and talents and hearts. We've been given passions for, for all sorts of things, from farming to computers. To, and how, the question is, how will you use that treasure, your life, for the kingdom of God? How will you use the opportunities that you uniquely have in this world because of where you work, where you go to school, what degree program you're pursuing, what family you are from, what state you are from, what your marriage looks like, where you work, where you go to school, all of these things. Every one of these is an opportunity for the kingdom to come. How will you use it? Will you be open? Now, you have a bulletin, I hope, and on the back there's space for taking notes, and you probably wrote down one or two things that I didn't say that the Holy Spirit said to you, and that's awesome. But I want to take a minute, and I want you to just think about, what are the contexts? What are the opportunities that God has placed me in? For some, for these Greek men, it was widows and orphans, people right from their community that they were being called to serve. But what is it for you? What what context has the Holy Spirit specifically gifted you where you can give your life, where you can use the treasure that you've been given to serve. And I want you just to, we're going to take a minute of silence. I just want you to quickly jot those down. And then we're going to kind of wrap this up and go play baseball and eat food together, right? So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just speak to us right now, open our hearts and minds to hear where it is that you've called us, what context you've given us to be and bring your kingdom. Throughout the whole book of Acts, we see different people. And even through the rest of the, the stories of the New Testament and the books of, of uh, the letters and epistles, we see people coming to the surface who give God their yes. Some people in the book of Acts, it's specifically about going around the world and planting churches and becoming missionaries. And some people, it's to stay right there in Jerusalem and to preach. Some people, it's to stay right there in Jerusalem and take care of widows. Some people, it's right there to stay right there in Jerusalem and to work and to provide for the needs of others. For some people later on, it's to dye purple cloth and to pay for missionaries. And other people are called to set slaves free. And some of them are to make tents. And in all of these places, in all of these contexts, and all of this work that is for people, they have been commissioned as ministers of the gospel to bring the good news of Jesus by doing what they are called and chosen to do. The only gift that we can ever give God It's not worship, it's not tithes and offerings, and it's not even why we give. The only gift we can ever give God is ourselves. It's the only offering we can make is to say, here's my life, here's my heart, Lord. Take it and use it for your glory. Use it for your goodness. Build your kingdom through me. Build your kingdom in my work. Build your kingdom in my family. Build your kingdom in my neighborhood and use me to do it. To see every opportunity, everything in life, every moment, every minute as a chance to minister to bring Jesus to people. doesn't mean you have to be weird or wear a sandwich sign. It just means you have to learn to love people that are right in front of you. So these seven men in this story give Jesus their yes. And what we see happens in the very end of it, because of their yes and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There is an extra biblical 
uh, letter written by a Roman, uh, just a Roman merchant who came to Jerusalem during this time period and, and experienced the church of those, that, those days. And he goes home and he writes to his friend. And what he says of the early church in Rome, this is a non-Christian guy. God didn't believe in Judaism. He was a full-on Roman. He said, these people not only take care of one another, but they take care of ours too. They not only feed their needy, but they feed ours too. They not only love the people that they have right around them, they treat us well too. What a testimony of the church. They were ministered to by the church because people gave their life to Jesus and they said yes. So the invitation this morning is, will you give your life to Jesus and say yes? It happens on so many levels. Sometimes we come for the first time and we say, okay, my life is not my own and I am giving this to God because he's given his life for me. That's salvation. But it's a, it's a moment thing we have to do over and over and over again to continually give Jesus our yes. To give Jesus my yes now, to give my Jesus yes at the potluck, to give Jesus my yes in the baseball game, to give Jesus my yes tonight as I'm getting ready to go to bed, to give Jesus my yes tomorrow morning when I wake up grumpy and my kids are, are grumpy and we got to come together and we got to get to school. To say, yes, Jesus, I want to I be your love in this, this space. Help me. Over and over and over again. Some of us have been called to be ministers professionally, but all of us have been called as ministers at all times and in all places. You are ministers of the gospel, now, later, and in every moment. Your career, your study, your relationships. Everywhere you go, you encounter brokenness. You are a minister. Now, these men that said yes, what the church did was they laid hands on them. And it was a symbol of laying power upon them, authority upon them, empowering them for the, the ministry that they were called to. And there are too many of us this morning for me to go around and just lay hands on all of you. And I can just pray, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this this morning, actually, I'm going to empower you. But there are other ways to empower you as well. One of the ways that we can empower you is by give you money. You have to like, what? It's like, that was a sudden change of tack. The church has been given a grant of $1,000 to empower the people in the church to minister to the world around them. For some of us, it's just easy. It's, 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 we minister in love, right? But sometimes we have ideas that come into our head that we can reach our colleagues, we can reach our neighborhood, if only I did this or I did that. And we've been offered $1,000 to give away to you, free of charge, to empower your gifting and calling. And so this morning at the backspace, as we go out, there's going to be little applications, and it's a simple application. All it's really asking is, what is, what is this thing that, that you've been called to do? What is this idea that God has put in you? What is this idea you had before or that you've done before that helps you reach out? Maybe it's buying donuts for like once a week for, for three months, and we're just putting a note in it that says, hey, Jesus loves you, and, and I love you too, and if you ever need to talk, you know, it's something like simple as that. Or it could be something bigger. I don't care what it is. So you just write down what your idea is, what your name and email address is, and we'll contact you, and we'll get you some money. And it's free. So we're going to empower you with that. We're calling it the Flip It Grant. Because you know what it says in Acts 17 is that when people said yes to Jesus, it flipped the world upside down. And that's what's going to happen is we are empowered as ministers of the gospel. The word of God is going to continue and increase. The number of disciples is going to continue to increase. And the word, the, the, the nature and the character of the church is going to change. And its reputation is going to change. And things are going to look different. Everywhere we encounter brokenness, we bring to bear God's goodness. And we are ministers in every place that we find ourselves. None of you are disqualified. So I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to pray and close our service so we can go. It's time right now. And in the back, Casey's going to have the, the applications. I just encourage you to take one, even if you don't think you need one. Even if you're like, oh, I don't need any money. Take one anyway and think about it and pray about it and ask God, like, how could I use this little bit of money to share your good news, to, to be love and light, to be holiness, to be grace, to be mercy to the world right around me? Jesus, I pray for this church. I pray, God, that we would begin to see ourselves as ministers, that we wouldn't be content to be cruise ship Christians, 
where we come and we're just here to receive, and then we get off the boat after church and go back to normal life. God, I pray that what we receive here from your word, this good news that we are chosen, that we are accepted, that we have been made holy and made right before you, would be a message that we can share with others through our goodness, our kindness, our gentleness, our peace, our grace, our mercy, the things that you place in us that we pour out to others and minister to them in our careers, in our schoolwork, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our relationships, in every place that we go, every brokenness that we encounter, to be a minister for you at every moment. God, set us free to do that. May we not be divided by our politics or our opinions. God, may we not be divided by minister and, and layperson or attender, but all of us released for your kingdom's goodness. Jesus, I commission this church right now in your name. I empower them with your Holy Spirit. By the power that you have placed in me as a leader, God, I place it on them to go to this world and to love them for Jesus' sake. God, we, we give this to you. We give this church to you. In your name, amen. Would you guys stand with me and sing the doxology? It's the way we often like to close our services. It says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And I want you to know this morning, you are the blessing that God is pouring out on this world. You are the blessing to somebody else. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Go in His grace, giving your yes to Jesus, knowing that Jesus gives you to the world. Go knowing that Jesus loves you, and Heidi and I love you too. Amen. Would you guys join us today for some potluck fun up at Sunnyside Park? It's just up the hill. Don't, don't miss it. It's going to be awesome.